You're listening to the Prince College Podcast, a ministry of Prince Avenue Baptist Church, where our goal is to lead you to trust and follow Jesus. Glad you guys are here. Like Garrett said, we're continuing. We're week two of our series through the Lord's Prayer. And he's exactly right. Like this is a prayer that is probably one of the most famous passages of Scripture. Even if you didn't grow up in church at all, there's a a decent chance that you've at least heard this prayer, perhaps at a funeral or at a wedding, or maybe you gathered together with your football team and used to say it before you stormed the field on Friday nights. I don't know. But it's a prayer that we have heard a lot. But what we talked about last week As we began this journey together, that is, Jesus uses his prayer to teach his disciples and to teach us how we are to pray. And that this prayer was never meant to just be something that we memorize and recite. It was something that was meant to guide us into prayer ourselves. What we see Jesus doing in these moments as he's showing us the Lord's Prayer, as he's revealing the Lord's Prayer to us, is that he's teaching us so much about prayer and so much about God. He's teaching us a heart posture. He's teaching us a way in which we are to relate to God. He's teaching us the types of things that we should be praying about. And by teaching us the types of things that we should be praying about, he is teaching us the things that we should care about most in life. That is what the Lord's Prayer is. So what we talked about last week is that we should view this prayer of Jesus more like a template to follow and less like a transcript to recite. Like it's, it is a good and beautiful practice to be able to pray the Lord's Prayer exactly, but it was not just meant to do that. It is not just meant for you to memorize and recite. It is meant to lead you into prayer yourselves, to lead you to know God personally and to experience him and to know the types of things that you should be concerned about, that you should be praying about. And so what we said last week is that that's the exact reason that we're starting here this semester. Because if we desire to be a people who know God and who make him known on our campus and in this city and to the ends of the earth, we must understand the truths of this. I want us to be a people who know how to relate to God, how to spend time with him and how to be changed by him, how to care about the things that he wants us to care about and how to pray the way that he would have us to pray. So as we began our journey last week, we opened up with this first line of the Lord's Prayer. It's just simply our Father in heaven. And what we talked about last week is that that's not just like a, you know, like a a cool little introduction to Jesus's prayer, that, that Jesus in this moment is inviting us to know and relate to the God of the universe, the one who created all things, to know him as our Father. We talked about how this invitation from Jesus, it changes everything. Jesus is letting us in on the access that is afforded to us, that because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we now have the opportunity to know God as our heavenly Father. And what we talked about last week is that Jesus is the one who invites us and enables us to know God as Father. And this opening line of the prayer shows us both God's love for us as he invites us to know him as father, but also it shows us his great power over all things because we're reminded that he is our father who is in heaven. That was last week. And this week, we come to a really, really significant line in the Lord's Prayer, and one that I think is probably the most just 
the one that we don't understand. It's the one that's just so hard to, for us to wrap our minds around because it uses some language that we do not use. Yet I think that this is one of the most significant lines in the entire Lord's Prayer. Actually, I heard a pastor speak about this one time and he said that this next line of the Lord's Prayer can be viewed almost like the mission statement for Jesus's entire ministry while here on earth. That this one line could be used as Jesus's mission statement for his entire ministry while here on earth. Those of you who are business majors in the room, you should know that a, a mission statement is used to communicate what an organization is all about, what they value, what they're going after, right? So some famous mission statements that we know, like Google, their mission statement is to organize the world's information and to make it universally accessible and useful. Good job, Google. We all love that, especially whenever we're looking up stuff for classes, right? Very useful. Thank you, Google. Chick-fil-A, their mission statement is to glorify God by being a faithful steward of all that is entrusted to us and to have a positive influence on all who come into contact with Chick-fil-A. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you for the chicken sandwich with pimento cheese that we got to taste this week. Our mission statement here at Prince, very simple, is to lead people to trust and follow Jesus. These are mission statements. And this pastor was making the argument that, that this next line in the Lord's Prayer could be like Jesus' mission statement for his entire ministry. And this line is this, that he comes out, of, he starts this Lord's Prayer, he says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven. And then this next line is, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. That line in many ways, sums up the life and the ministry of Jesus. Every line that's going to come next in the Lord's Prayer flows from this line. This should be something that captivates our hearts, that captivates our minds, and if it was Jesus's mission on earth, that means it should matter a whole lot to us if we are his followers, right? But here's the deal. I think that whenever we hear that, Whenever we hear this is Jesus' mission statement for why he was on earth, like we hear that and then we hear the line, hallowed be your name, we're a little underwhelmed because it just, we don't talk like that anymore. Like I'd be willing to bet that out of the several of you that are in this room, none of you use the word hallowed today in a normal like human sentence. I would bet you probably haven't used that word maybe even ever outside of saying the Lord's Prayer, right? Like it's not a normal part of our vernacular. It's not a normal part of our conversations. And because we don't understand the language, we don't grasp the depth of the meaning of this statement. And that's why I think it's important for us to do what we're doing tonight, to take time to pause and to really dig deep into what the scriptures are actually saying and begin to understand more deeply what this actually means. And I believe that as we take time to do this tonight, you will begin to see more clearly why this mattered so much to Jesus and why it should matter to you if you are one of his followers. So here's what I wanna do tonight. I just wanna address this in three ways. I wanna talk first about what this line even means. What does it mean whenever we pray, hallowed be your name? We're gonna talk about what it means. We're gonna talk about why we would pray it in the first place. We're gonna talk about what, we're gonna talk about why, and then we're gonna talk about how we participate in the hallowing of the name of God. So with our time left together, what we're gonna do is we're gonna talk about what, we're gonna talk about why, and we're gonna talk about how. Does that sound good to you guys? All right, couple nods. 
great. We're going to dive in. All right, we're going to start with the what. And we're going to just kind of break this first phrase into two parts. We're going to talk about hallowed, and then we're going to talk about the, the your name piece of this, because I think those are the most confusing parts of this line. All right, so we're going to start with hallowed. In order for us to understand this, we've got to do a little digging into the original language here. So I hope you're I hope you're ready. We're gonna, there's a lot of theological concepts that are wrapped up in this one word, so we're going to do a little mini theology class here at Wednesday Night in Bogart. I hope that you're prepared for this. What, what you need to know is this, that in the original language, so this would have been translated from a Greek transcript, in the original language, this word that we see as hallowed in the English is also translated in other places as consecrated or sanctified. What this word means in the Greek is it means to make something holy. That's what that word means. And most often, whenever we see this word used in the text, in the New Testament, it is used in reference to us, in reference to God sanctifying or consecrating us, in reference to God making us holy. And what that means is that God takes us and he removes the things of sin from our lives and he replaces them with the things of righteousness. This is what happens in the life of every believer, every true apprentice to Jesus, every true disciple of Christ experiences this in their life. That whenever you come to the moment where you truly see Jesus for who he actually is, and your eyes are open to the fact that Jesus was not just some man that lived some 2,000 years ago, that he wasn't just some prophet or just some good teacher, but he's actually the son of God who lived the perfect life that we could not, died the sacrificial death that we deserve, and rose from the grave three days later, and you acknowledge him as the son of the most high, the one who has come to save us, and you give your life over to him then you are made right with God. You are brought into relationship again with God the Father. The theological term for that is justification, that you are made right with God. But that is not the end moment of your life as a believer, that is the beginning. Because as soon as you enter into that relationship with Jesus, God begins to transform you from the inside out. You begin to die to your former way of living and you begin to live into your new identity as a son or a daughter of the Most High King. You begin to become more like Christ. And the theological term for that is the word sanctification, which is the word here in this text, that you begin to be sanctified, that through the power of the Holy Spirit, he begins to remove the old and put on something new in your life. One of my favorite passages of scripture is Colossians chapter three. I talk about it a lot. And one of the verses in two of the verses there talk about this idea, Colossians three, verses nine through 10. You don't have to flip there. It says this. It says, don't lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. This passage carries the idea of taking off one thing and putting on another, almost like taking off one garment and putting on another. So what we see is through the power of the Holy Spirit, what begins to happen in us as believers is that we begin to take off the the garments of sin and death and put on the garments of righteousness and life. This is what begins to happen in the life of a believer. God sanctifies you. 
Is everybody with me so far? You can nod. Give me a thumbs up. We're, we're good. Okay. That is what this word means the majority of the time that it is used in the New Testament. However, in this context, right here in the Lord's Prayer, whenever we say, hallowed be your name, that is not necessarily what this word means. Because we do not take anything away from God, nor do we add anything to God. We're not, we're not making him holy. We're not removing things from him or adding anything to him. God is already holy. God is already perfect. There is no need to take anything from him. There is no need to add anything to him. He is completely self-sufficient in and of himself. So when we say this, hallowed be your name. What we are saying is that we want the name of God to be regarded as holy. That we want people to see God as one to be celebrated, one to be treasured, one to be prized above all things. That he is the ultimate joy. He is the ultimate treasure. What we see here is that this line in the Lord's Prayer, it's not just a statement. It's a request We're asking for this to be done. I think sometimes we read that and we see hallowed be your name and we basically translate that in our mind to like God is great. God is awesome. God is holy. But this is not just a statement. If it were a statement, Jesus would have said hallowed is your name. But he doesn't say that. He says hallowed be your name. So he is leading us to request this of God that we want his name to be regarded as holy. Hallowed be your name. That leads us to the second part of that statement. The hallowed be your name. And if you're anything like me, you like to ask questions. And I, I, I just ask the question, like, why the your name part? Like God could have, I mean, Jesus could have said anything, right? The hallowed be your glory. Hallowed be your power. Hallowed be your, you fill in the blank. He could have said whatever he wanted right there. But he said, hallowed be your name. Why? Well, it's because all of those things are wrapped up in God's name. Hopefully you understand that, that a name is intimately connected with the person to whom it belongs. Like whenever you think about a name, whenever you think about the name of someone, you think about not just the name, you think about that entire person, your memories with them, the things that you associate with them, their their character, things that you have experienced about them, right? So if I were to say any specific name, you would call to mind people in your life that have that name. Like there are some of you in the room who have like names that you'll never name your children. There's like nothing wrong with the name itself, but it's because you knew somebody who had that name and you absolutely despise them. Right? Like you're like, I'm never naming my kid Jack because I knew a Jack in second grade and he was the worst, right? Like that's, we all have that. We have, there's nothing wrong with the name. There's something wrong with the name, the person that was associated with that name. So if I say a name like Mother Teresa, Right, like that, that calls to mind images in your mind, feelings, emotions. And I would imagine for the majority of you in the room, it doesn't really call to mind anything negative because it's kind of hard to hate on a woman who spent her entire life like leveraging her life for the poor and the marginalized, right? Nobody really hates on Mother Teresa. There's good things associated with her name. However, on the opposite end of the spectrum, if I said the name Adolf Hitler, right? Like that calls to mind all kinds of other associations. And we think of evil, bigotry, racism, all kinds of darkness. Nobody's naming their kid Adolf anymore, right? Because 
there is a negative association with the one who once bore that name. In the same way, whenever we are saying that we want the name of God to be regarded of holy, we're talking about the name that encompasses all that God is, all that he has done, all that he is about, his character, his nature, his power. Throughout the Old Testament, God in the book of Exodus, he reveals himself to Moses as the great I am. And whenever Moses asks God, what is your name? Who is it that is sending me to free the people of Israel? God says, I am the great I am. And there's not enough time in this moment to break down what that means, but that name means God is existence. He is self-sufficient. He is self-sustaining, that all of us in this room depend upon things to remain alive, but God does not. He is self-sufficient and self-sustaining. He's the great I am. The divine name of God shown to us throughout the Old Testament, we, we just refer to God like God is his name, and God is not his name. That is a title. His name throughout the Old Testament is the name Yahweh. Perhaps you've heard that before. What you may or may not know is many Hebrew scholars actually believe that that name was not meant to be spoken as much as it was meant to be breathed. That Yahweh was meant to be pronounced like a breath, like Yahweh, Yahweh. And the symbolism in that was that we believe that God formed man out of the dust and breathed life into his lungs. And as we breathe out his name, it is a remembrance that from the moment that we take our first breath to the moment that we take our last breath, the name of God is on our lips whether we know it or not. That is the name that we want to be regarded as holy. We want the name of God to be hallowed, cherished, prized, celebrated across all the earth. We want all peoples in all places to know the glory and the might and the majesty of our God and to regard him for who he truly is. We desire to see what we see in places like Habakkuk 2.14, where it says the entire earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That is what we desire. That is what we are praying Whenever we pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's the what of this prayer. That's what you are praying. The question then becomes, well, why? Why would I pray that? Why would I make this request? And I think it's important for us to like, push past the answer of Jesus said so. So all of you like Sunday school kids, put that answer to the side. And let's, let's dive a little deeper than that, because let's be real. Like, we live in a world that teaches us to go after the advancement of our own name, right? To be a part of building our own kingdom, to be a part of advancing our self. So in the midst of the culture that we live in, why would we ask this of the name of God? It's a good question for us to ask. It's a good question for us to reckon with. And I think the answer to that is simple, that we should be making this request out of a deep, abiding belief that God is the only thing in the world that will ever satisfy the souls of the ones he created. That's why we make this request. Because we believe with every fiber of our being that he's the only one who can satisfy, that he is the greatest good that we could ever experience, that no amount of success, 
no amount of acclaim, no amount of money, no amount of anything in this world could ever satisfy, only he can. He is the greatest good. And we cry out for the name of God to be hallowed because we believe that he's the greatest thing that anyone could ever experience. We cry for this to happen because we have experienced this ourselves. This is the cry of the believer, that if you are a believer in this room, that means that you believe that Jesus Christ came into the world to save you so that you could be brought back into right relationship with God, that you were eternally separated from God, but because of the finished work of Christ, that you have now been brought near and you have experienced fullness of joy. You have experienced acceptance and you've been brought back into the family of God. And we cry for the name of God to be hallowed because we want all people in all places to experience what we have experienced because we believe that it is an objective fact that the greatest thing in all the universe is the creator of the universe himself like it's not this is not a debatable thing like this is not there's a very big difference between objective fact and subjective opinion you understand that right like if I come up to Xander and I tell Xander hey I think that the best breakfast place in Athens is big city bread that is my opinion and even though I will stand on my opinion and I will cite my 11 years of experience in this city as proof for that opinion it is still my opinion Whenever I come to Xander and I say, Xander, God is the greatest good in all the universe. That is not my opinion. That is objective fact. And we cry out this because we want all people to experience the greatness of God. The Bible speaks of God's greatness from beginning to end. Psalm 145 says, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. We can't even comprehend the depth of his power and his love. Deuteronomy 10 says, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty mighty and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. Psalm 95 says, for the Lord is a great God and a great king above all. This is the God we're talking about. Objectively, the greatest thing in all the universe, but we cry out for his name to be hallowed because even though that is objectively true, there are many people in our world who do not believe it. And so we're crying out for his name to be hallowed because we want people to see the truth. I heard a pastor speaking about this topic. Um, his name is Ben Stewart. He's the pastor of Washington, uh, Passion City, D.C., very influential in my life. And he, he was talking about this exact same talk about, about the importance of us praying for God, for people to see the, the objective truth that God is the greatest good in all the universe. And he used this incredible analogy that I'm gonna share with you. And I don't, I don't make a habit of like stealing other people's analogies, but this one's like too good. And I want you to like hear this, okay? Ben talked about how he has a sister who, his sister and her husband were missionaries in Madagascar for a time. And their job was to take the gospel to these tribal peoples in these villages who were really far off from the rest of society. And she would talk about how they would get to these villages and they would see the most devastating scene in front of them. They would see people just riddled with preventable diseases. They would see children and women and men dying from starvation and malnutrition because they didn't have access to food. 
And so they would come into these villages to preach the gospel, but they would also bring with them the seeds of what is called the moringa tree. And I want to tell you just a little bit about this tree. This tree thrives in arid conditions, and it grows over 10 feet per year. And it has edible leaves. And let me tell you a little bit about these leaves. These leaves have more protein than an egg, three times more iron than spinach, seven times more vitamin C than oranges, four times more vitamin A than carrots, four times more calcium than milk, and three times more potassium than bananas. And on top of that, they can, the extract can be taken from the leaves and used as fuel, and the seeds can be ground up to actually purify water. All right, that's a dope tree. Like, that's a really awesome tree. Objectively speaking, that is a good tree. Great. (laughs) It is a good tree. Like, we need this tree. And so they would show up to this tree, and they called this tree the tree of life, the miracle tree. And it has brought hope to so many places, but they would show up in these tribal villages in Madagascar, And the people would refuse to plant the seeds. They wouldn't accept them. And we hear that sitting in our context and we think, why in the world would you refuse something that is so objectively good? Why would you refuse something that could literally, will literally save your life? This is an objectively good thing that you need. And the reason was that there was a local witch doctor in that area that had convinced the people that these trees were evil, that they would not bring good, they would only bring harm. And because of out of fear of the witch doctor, they believed the lie, and their belief in that lie led them down a path that led to their own destruction. And that is a picture of the world in which we're currently living. The reality in our world is that sin's real, and that we have an enemy that whispers lies into our hearts and minds all the time. And we live in a world in which people are so marred and broken by their sin. And in the midst of that reality, we, the people of God, if you're a believer in this room, you believe that you know the one hope, the one thing that will save the souls of humanity and bring them back to God. And it is God himself. That is why this was the mission of Jesus, for the name of God to be hallowed among all peoples and all places, because he understood that without God, we are utterly helpless and utterly hopeless. And there is a hope for the world, but the sad reality is that many have rejected this objective truth And they've bought the lie that they'd be better off on their own. They've bought the lie that God is not good. That's a lie that the enemy's been telling since the beginning story of Scripture. That God is not good. That he's holding something back from you. And by buying that lie, they are moving towards their own destruction. And here's the deal. This isn't a fun thing to talk about. But if you're a believer in the room, I think it's important that you need to let this reality land on your heart. Like, that reality should be devastating for the heart of every believer in the room. That there are people that you know, people in our city, people on our campuses, and certainly people all around the globe who have bought a lie 
and they're headed to their own destruction, headed to their own death. We need to let that reality sink into our souls. We don't need to just ignore it or dismiss it. That should be devastating to the life of the believer and that should fuel our desire to pray this prayer of Jesus that we do not want that to be so in this city. We do not want that to be so on our campuses. We do not want that to be so in the nations all around the world. We want all people in all places for all time to know the glory, the might, the majesty of God so we cry out with Jesus, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's why we pray this prayer. We must be a people who pray this along with Jesus, desiring for all people to see the glory and the beauty and the majesty of God, to understand the objective truth that he is the greatest good that we could ever experience. We must be people who pray for this, but I'm here to tell you that it should not just be the focus of our prayers, and it should not just be the focus of the things that we think about, but that this desire should characterize the way that we live our very lives. Like, the desire for the name of God to be hallowed did not just characterize this one prayer that Jesus prayed, it characterized everything that he did while on earth, and we as his followers should do the same. We should live our lives in this pursuit. And so that brings us to our last question, how? So we've covered the what, we've covered the why. Now how? How do we join in on this? How do we participate in the hallowing of the name of God? I I, I thought about that a lot this week. Like how can we be a people that sync up not only our prayer but our very lives around this desire for God's name to be hallowed? Like that's, that's what I want for us. Like if we're gonna be a city on a hill, if we're gonna be a people who are used by God to advance his kingdom here on earth, if we're gonna be a people who are used by God to to move into this world in his name, we must be a people who desire to live our lives in a way that make much of the name of God. The question becomes, how do we do that? And that, that question is a big question, and there's probably an entire another sermon in that one question, but I'm just going to sum it up like this. This is, if we want to be a people who live our lives to hallow the name of God, we need to do this. It's going to be behind me on the screen. So we must be a people of reflection that leads to action. We must be a people of reflection that leads to action. What do I mean by that? I just want to break this down for you real quick as we come to a close here in just a couple minutes. If we honestly want to be a part of hallowing the name of God in our world, we must be a people of reflection that leads to action. That means that if we want to be a part of this, if we want to be a part of hallowing the name of God in our world, in our city, on our campuses, we must first make sure that the name of God has been hallowed in our own hearts. You understand that? That must happen in our own hearts, which means that we actually have to pause long enough to reflect on the glory and the majesty of God and let those things sink deep down into our souls. This is something that I'm continuing to learn a lot about in my own life. Like if I'm being honest with all of you in the room tonight, this is not something that, is nat- that I'm naturally good at. <laughs> like I'm a person who lives my life at a really high speed. <laughs> 
I like to jump from thing to thing, from opportunity to opportunity to people, like hanging out with people to hanging out with people. Like example A, like today, this afternoon, I'm on the phone with my wife and we're talking about our plans for tomorrow. And I'm telling her that I have a meeting at 6 p.m. She and I have planned to have dinner together at 6.30, but I'm also trying to figure out how I can still hang out with some friends at eight, right? Like that timeline does not compute, right? Like not, that's not gonna happen. I, don't have a, I can't have a meeting at six, dinner with her at 6.30 and still hang out with friends at eight. It's like, this is, that's how my mind operates. I like to jump from thing to thing to thing. But what I'm learning in my life is that if I wanna be effective in ministry, If I wanna be effective for the kingdom of God, it's gonna require me to slow down because true productivity happens through depth, not through speed. And so in order for for me to go deep, I actually have to slow down long enough to pause and to reflect. And I share that with you because this is also something I see in many of you. I see this in your life. The college season of life, whether you're actually in college or not, this time period in your life is filled with many opportunities. There is no shortage of things to commit your time to. Even within Christian circles, you can commit your time to so many things. You can hop from a Prince College night to a family group, to another small group, to a campus ministry gathering, to a Bible study that your friend's hosting, to a Sunday morning service here, to a Sunday night service over here, to check out this other college ministry's college night over here. And you can just fill your lives with so much Christian activity, bouncing from thing to thing to thing to thing. But I want to caution you. Do not hear me say this. Do not confuse activity with productivity. They're not the same thing. You can live your life at 100 miles per hour, jumping from thing to thing to thing and live an inch deep with your relationship with God. And that's not what I want for you. I want so much more for you than that. And if we're gonna be a people who make much of the name of Jesus, then we must be a people who cultivate time in our lives to actually behold God, to actually be with him, to actually spend time with him, to actually experience him. That's why I asked Sarah Franklin to read that passage in Philippians, verse four, because I love the order of this. Paul, wrapping up this letter, he encourages the Philippian believers to think on whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If anything is worthy of praise, think about these things. The command for them to pause and to think about the things of God comes before the command to put those things into practice. Notice that. Verse eight comes before verse nine. Verse eight is all about pausing and considering the things of God. Verse nine is about putting those things into practice. If you are going to be a person, a man or a woman who is used by God to do things in this world, you have to become a person who actually cultivates time in your life to reflect and to consider and to spend time with this God who made you, to consider the God who spoke and sent all things into motion to consider the God who formed mankind out of the dust and breathed life into their lungs, to consider the God who took a sojourner named Abraham and made him the father of a nation, 
to consider the God who took a runaway murderer named Moses and used him to free captives from Egypt, to consider the God who parted the Red Seas, to consider the God who took an insignificant shepherd boy and made him a mighty king, to consider the God who sent his son, Jesus, to live, die, and rise again for you, to consider what all of this means for this God who has invited you to know him as father. You actually have to slow down long enough to let those realities land on your heart. Be a person of reflection. Be one who goes deep. And from that place of reflection, you then step into action. You step into action. The reality is this, if we want to be a part of hallowing the name of God, if we want to see his name hallowed in all, among all peoples in all places, we must be a people who live our lives differently than the world around us. It can't be just about the way that we pray. It can't be just about the way that we think. It's got to be about the way that we live. And that's why Philippians 4.9 comes after Philippians 4.8. God's name will be hallowed through our obedience to him. You understand that? John 14 talks about this. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. James talks about this, that it doesn't do anyone any good to just be a hearer of the word, but we must be a doer of the word. We've got to put these things into action. It's got to change the way that we live our lives, that we don't operate our lives like the world tells us to. We operate our lives the way that the Lord tells us to, that we commit to being people of purity instead of people of promiscuity. It changes the way that we pursue our relationships, right? That changes the way that we date. That changes the things that we look at. That changes the the things that we watch. That changes the things that we think about. We commit to being people of integrity instead of dishonesty, which means that that changes the way that we pursue our degree, right? We're not not cutting corners like everybody around us because we believe that the way that we study, the way that we work, the way that we live, it actually says something about God. So we choose to be people of integrity instead of people of dishonesty. We choose to be people who value others instead of just trying to seek the advancement of our own name. We're people who are willing to enter into the brokenness of the world rather than retreat from it. We live our lives the way that we see our king live his. We live according to the word of God and out of our obedience to him, we begin to proclaim to the world something about God. We begin to proclaim to the world that our God is a God that is worth following. That he's a God who is the objective best thing that we could ever experience. And if we begin to live our lives like this, the world around us will see something different about us and it will provide us opportunities to make much of the one that we belong to. This is what our life should be about. Reflection that leads to action. The band's gonna go ahead and come back up and they're gonna lead us in one more song here in just a moment. But I deeply desire for this to be something that characterizes us. Like I don't want you to be a people of speed and no depth. I want you to be a person who knows the truth of who God is and what he has done. May we be a people who reflect on the goodness of God and let that reality land in our hearts and then who move out differently as a result. The world around us needs to see something different in the lives of the believers of Jesus. That starts with us as we, we take time to behold God and move out into the world differently. May we be a people 
who join with Jesus by praying our prayer and living our lives the same way that he did, our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Would you pray with me?